Welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast. This is a podcast for you if you're a student, teacher, administrator, or parent interested in evolving what it is that we call education. I'm Rob McLeod with Brendan O'Leary, and our big question is, are mainstream schools designed just to save money? Oh, Brendan, I love the clickbait title. How are you today? Well, that's great. I'm not too bad, Rob. How are you? (laughs) Pretty stellar on this wonderful day. Um, This episode is going to be a bit of a strange one because I think we're just going to tell facts and anecdotes about what physical buildings look like. But the longer you and I were planning this episode, we realized there's a lot of just really subtle nuances and differences when talking about these different kinds of schools. I know we've thrown out this disclaimer the last few episodes, but we would recommend if you're brand new to us, going back, check out our 50th episode called Start Here 2.0, a map for reinventing education. There we lay out exactly what we're talking about when we discuss a traditional school, mainstream school, progressive school, and post-progressive. We're just going to be using that language in this episode, kind of assuming you've been following along with us. But if you're new to us, go back and check out the 50th episode. But today, we're looking at mainstream schools. So this is the typical school you'd find pretty much anywhere around the world, particularly in the Western world these days. Certainly, this would uh, reflect Canada, reflect Germany, and I would say Belgium, three of the countries I've worked and taught in. The kind of buildings, the school buildings we're going to discuss today are typically what you just think of as a school in 2020 or have thought of as school for the last 50 years or so. So let's go back in time a little bit and let's look at a traditional school let's say from the 1800s up to like maybe even roughly the 1940s, often you'd see like a one-room schoolhouse. They're usually quite ornate. There's the Queen Anne style, and it looks less like a modern school and more like a town hall, like a museum or a church, and very utilitarian classrooms. Sometimes you know, the rows of desks are even bolted to the floor so they can't be moved around. Basically, that room is set up so that someone is looking forward at the teacher who's at that board. And the actual building itself has this kind of very classic and distinct look to it. But from the outside, it could be easy to mistake the school for a church. Not even say that cruising around in like rural roads in Canada. It would be it's easy enough to mistake like the old one room schoolhouse for just a typical old church. And a lot of these buildings now in England are being refurbished as apartment blocks. I don't think anybody will be repurposing the the school down the road as a home uh, anytime soon so yes we're not quite thinking of hogwarts but we're not too far away from that kind of image with the old traditional schoolhouse but they didn't didn't stay that way did it rob something happened did not so if we look at the mainstream approach to what a school should look like things begin to actually look quite industrial and much more contemporary and one term that has been used is to describe the bells and cells so in particular you saw this shift in architectural change between the 19 1950s and the 1970s, and I would argue is just still more or less continuing to this day. The school design is very simple. It is not ornate at all, typically not fancy. Smooth, flat surfaces, flat walls, flat roofs, essentially usually just giant rectangles out (laughs) in the community, typically symmetrical. You know, the common kind of the materials that these be made of, steel, concrete, and often very large windows. And even though windows, glass is kind of an expensive material to build a school out of, you know, it just helps with that thing to make them very bright and very well lit, which the traditional schools arguably typically were not very well lit. 
And although like you could drive by a school now and you wouldn't mistake it for a church or anything like that, modern schools don't just have to be the school buildings that were built for that intention. In many cases, especially in cities where space, geography, real estate is very difficult to acquire, the school building itself could actually be anything. And actually a lot of modern mainstream schools are actually in office building spaces or as we've seen in Berlin, even repurposed industrial buildings that have been converted into very modern schools. So there's this idea that schools in one way don't need that building that has commonly been associated with them and has actually in some ways made creating a new school more affordable and more accessible for some groups. Typically, when you walk around one from the outside, you'll see like very low maintenance greenery. So gone are, you know, the nice rose gardens or very proper formal hedges that you may have seen with some traditional schools. Lots of windows, lots of light, as we said, and essentially the space is just functional. Big, wide open hallways. There are more specialized rooms. Essentially, you just need space for a lot of different classes to go to their lessons and to be able to move around in the hallways without too much commotion. So definitely built for efficiency, definitely built for uh, function, much more so than the traditional school. So why do we see this, Brennan? I mean, essentially, schools, as they encompassed more and more children and as the population grew, there was just a need for more places, more school places and so schools became bigger there were more schools built within towns and cities so very much the new designs of the buildings the more contemporary designs of the buildings post-war were becoming in line with with the with the advances in education that we've talked about in terms of mainstream schools so the ideas of curriculum standardized testing and the idea that school was much more a place to prepare you for the workplace more than arguably in the traditional school, which had more of a leaning towards preparing you as a citizen. And so we would see schools that were designed with a whole bunch of special rooms that were for the functional needs of that curriculum. So we would see science labs much more. We would see media centers. We might see rooms that were dedicated to language, rooms that were dedicated to math. And although arguably this would have happened before in some of the largest schools, it certainly was a long way from the one-room schools. This trend continued, and schools in some cases, especially in cities, just got bigger and bigger. And we now see some of the super schools where children could potentially come in at three or four years old and stay till 16, even 18 years old and we get into this idea of economies of scale and that question we're, we're going to be asking of whether mainstream schools are designed just for efficiency and especially to save money. This idea of keeping kids in one place for 15 years of their education, it definitely works on that idea of economies of scale where everything can be utilized in, a, in the most efficient way possible. Now there was an interesting kind of detour when in the 70s the progressive side of education had a little bit of a moment in the sun and this this was reflected in more open plan designs of schools we've both experienced these in in some way and hopefully we can get a little bit of time to chat about them but essentially schools were designed so that there were these large open spaces in the middle of them and classrooms often opened into the same space and in some cases there weren't really bespoke classrooms anymore everything was a shared space unfortunately this kind of crashed and burned a little bit in many ways because it 
it wasn't really in line with a form of education that was happening inside the school where students would stay in classes of 30 with the same teacher for an hour at a time and then they would move to the next class maths class science class social studies and so on so although the buildings were leaning towards this more progressive open plan that allowed for lots of collaboration and movement the actual schools themselves weren't teaching in this direction and so pretty much by the time the 80s were over we'd moved back to the old cells and bells this idea of the set of boxes connected by corridors we we've seen some updates to that designs as maybe we on the surface level try to spice up the building so you might see a little bit more of a fancy angle or there may you may see something where the materials are a little bit more bespoke and you might see a few more colors but essentially we're now more or less back to that contemporary post-war style of a whole bunch of small rooms that are connected by corridors so that's kind of a quick run through of what you might expect from a mainstream school building. What are some of the babies or some of the good things about this mainstream design of school buildings, Rob? So even though maybe we're being a little bit cynical and clickbaity with the question, are mainstream schools designed to save money? One of the benefits is if you can build schools at a reduced cost and provide more educational opportunities for those in your area, that is a positive thing. So we were starting to mention the super schools there and this idea that, you know, your primary, your middle school and your high school might be all within the same building. These bigger school buildings are there to meet surges in the population. So, you know, over time, especially in like the rural area where I came from in rural Ontario, you know, every 10 years or so, you would have a bit of a population boom and then things would seem to die off. And this took a real toll on those really small schools in the area because, you know, one year you might have 200 kids. And then five years later, you're struggling to have any classes that, you know, are meeting like sort of a, a viable minimum number of students. So these bigger school buildings help to kind of like balance some of this surge and drop off in enrollment. So being able to allocate the school's resources differently or a school board's resources differently, the building itself could be made more cost efficiently. And then the school board or province or state or country can provide higher quality education through a wider range of course offerings within one building. You know, we're kind of going with this idea that it's cheaper to have one large school rather than three completely different separate schools spread across the town, essentially. This idea of like a multifunctional space is also this new thing. Like a lot of the schools maybe we went to or grew up with may have had like, you know, a tech pod or like some kind of area where you'd go off to do specialized work or in a specific kind of art facility, maybe even more than just a typical art room or maybe even or an orchestra pit where, you know, not only can you practice, but you can also perform. So this idea of expanding from the traditional kind of one-room schoolhouse or kind of quaint bespoke corners of a school to multifunctional spaces is a really effective use of space. So, you know, I can think of like one of the schools I worked in, there was a space where in the morning there might be some kind of an assembly. After that, there would be differentiated reading groups utilizing the spread out area there. There might be a presentation in the afternoon and then in the evenings when parents arrive for like the sort of parent council meeting, they would meet there and there'd be a slide projector that would drop down. So the idea that you wouldn't need separate rooms for everything 
uh, I think is a really positive idea. And then finally, just the efficiency of having the cellular classrooms basically just means having rooms connected by hallways means that students can kind of get from one part of the school, one class to another rather quickly and effectively. So I'd say those are some of the positives of this mainstream approach to school design. But Rob, as always, it's not all babies. There's some bathwater in there. Bring the darkness hero, Larry. A little bit. You know, maybe if you were going to school in this beautiful Victorian building, actually, my, my kids, when we were in England for a little while, they went to a school that was about 120 years old, and it was beautiful. And, and what kind of feeling would that give you when you were working in that building compared with something that's somewhat sterile, maybe resembles like a corporate headquarters or a leisure center? And I think now, as we're leaning arguably more towards the progressive designs of buildings and looking to incorporate them into communities and so on, we've started to bring that back. The, the, what is the feeling of you actually being inside this school? But a lot of these buildings post-war were uh, you know, built very utilitarian. So how can we effectively and quickly build this? And that doesn't necessarily lead to a great vibe or environment. And sometimes when the schools are trying to save money, but they need more space, we see things like the portable classrooms. I was in a school where the portable classrooms were there for more than a decade, and we all, we all knew they weren't really portable anymore. So, And that doesn't really be, build this kind of unified idea that we've got a school, but I think that's the nature of going back to our key question today. Is it just a way to save money? We really need to ask ourselves whether the physical environment is really set up to motivate and inspire our learning, because a lot of great teaching and learning goes on inside mainstream schools, of course, but the environment itself plays a part in that. Yeah, and this is a common theme that you and I come back to with mainstream schools, this idea of efficiency versus effectiveness. And I think what we're kind of toying with here is just the idea that we can efficiently build new schools, but possibly not maximizing an equivalent amount of effectiveness. So we're just seeing ways that school buildings are created to be efficiently built, hopefully not too expensive. We can build them as we need them, but perhaps they're not being designed in ways that maximize some of those mainstream goals of ensuring that all students are reaching their full potential. If we shift our attention now into like the gymnasium, the sports field at the school, in a higher-end traditional school, we might see multiple sports areas. So you might have a really nice, you know, tennis court. We might have the really nice football pitch. Might have, you know, a separate rubber asphalt area for basketball, this kind of stuff. What you're more likely going to see, at least when looking at the indoor facilities, is essentially a gym as they'd often be known, or gymnasium. And inside, you're basically going to find something that's designed for multiple sports, you know, kind of at the drop of a hat. There's going to be an equipment room somewhere where you've got like, you know, the volleyball post, you know, all of these sorts of things where efficiency and purpose for the grounds spaces is paramount. So just describing like one of the facilities from my hometown, you've got like a running track that below the running track are the stands that then look down on what is essentially a basketball court, like all the lines are laid out for basketball, but they just so happen to more or less also line up with the lines to be used for indoor soccer or indoor floor hockey. And of course, half court, you can also set up the volleyball or badminton nets, depending on what you're doing. So this idea that you could actually perform upwards of a dozen different sports in that same room seems to be one of the kind of like shining, interesting examples 
examples of a sports facility indoors in a school in mainstream schools. Yeah, and I think that totally fits in with the mainstream idea of giving opportunities to students. So maybe a traditional school had a history of playing rugby or cricket or tennis, and maybe that's what you did most of your time. A mainstream school would aim at its best to give its students as wide a range of sports as possible so they can experience them and so they can get their skills up and they may have multiple sports teams. And so I think that's one of the strengths of the mainstream school, and this is a very functional way to do it. How can we take this limited amount of space and give as much opportunity as possible? And then the coaches, they may have multiple coaches from different sports. So the same coach who just happens to run 15 different sports clubs in a week, but the idea of opportunity is absolutely key. Yeah. And I'd say one of the only real drawbacks, like it's tough to knock this. I think this is actually a pretty cool thing. But just one of the drawbacks is it's just not overly aesthetically pleasing. Um, You know, if you're sitting in the stands in the facility I was discussing there and you look down on the floor, like, you know, it's a nice wooden floor, but there, I think there was maybe five or six different color schemes of lines, like the orange lines on the floor are for the basketball, you know, the green lines for if you're doing indoor soccer, and it just looks chaotic. I wouldn't exactly call it pleasing. Again, it looks more like kind of a community rec center than it does, you know, a traditional aesthetically pleasing kind of place. So if we move from the sports hall, where we've built up an appetite, and we head off to the dining hall, what would we see in a mainstream school dining hall, O'Leary? Well, the first question for a board when they're designing a school is, do we have the space? Do we have the money for a cafeteria? And in many cases in a traditional school, children would eat in their classrooms, even to this day in, in the school down the road here in Japan, the children will eat inside their classrooms. But even in a mainstream school, if the decision was made not to have a cafeteria, it would probably be because of cost rather than any idea that traditionally we should all sit together in our classrooms and eat our food. So I think the mainstream school wants a cafeteria and I've worked in schools that have them and schools that don't and the decision was usually a financial one rather than a philosophical one. But let's imagine that this school we're looking at now, they afforded it and they, they got a nice functional large cafeteria and what you might see, especially as children get older is more and more choice over what you can have. So there may be a tiered structure in terms of cost. You can pay several different amounts for different kinds of food. And in inside a mainstream school system, often uh, school meals are subsidized for families that are of lower income. I've been in some schools that have offered fantastic range of healthy food, delicious food, but we've also heard the stories of pizza is a vegetable. So you got to be careful. But ideally, this mainstream school would offer you a choice of where you sit, what you eat, and you may even have choices of different times of day when you come in, especially as kids get up into high school. The dining hall can really be a central hub in a mainstream school. Yeah, I concur. I would just say overall, if there is a cafeteria, that ability to have some choice, the opportunity to choose what you eat, where to sit, all of those things sound like good things. And, you know, maybe the only bathwater throw in here, you mentioned the nutrition. I might just say that, you know, certain schools, not that this is wrong, but certainly will get kickbacks, maybe depending through government subsidies or through caterers, you know, sharing a percentage of the income of parents are being charged that, you know, perhaps schools are going to like look at ways that they can maximize the profits off of the cafeteria. Obviously, we hope that that is always being used for the best in the school, but you know, we've heard a few crazy crooked stories. So if we move from food to libraries, when we looked at the traditional library setup, typically schools might have 
it's set up with a schedule where a class has a specific time once a week, maybe twice a week, where they go to the library, someone reads them a story, or there's kind of a bit of free time to find some books and all that sort of stuff. You see something similar in the mainstream school, but it's more likely to be that there are set times in the week when essentially all students can access what they want and as needed. So, you know, you might see this more possibly in a high school where the library is just open all day and possibly even staffed and you basically drop in when you need to and it's not a set time in your schedule that you have to be there for some reason. That said, uh, librarian shifts their role a bit from kind of tending the library in the traditional school towards really being an additional support for literacy skills and truly being like a teacher-librarian hybrid, essentially. And, you know, when you do have library time, if that is built into your schedule in a mainstream school, you know, they're there helping you with possibly reading skills, helping you with research skills, helping you to better maximize your use of the library itself. And in addition, if you look around in the library, the librarian's been acting as a curator and has probably set aside materials that are connected to current units that are happening. They know what the curriculum objectives or themes are, and they've been compiling collections of books or other media for you to be able to share and, and to look through. And as well, when we say library, we still often think of you know, actual paper books, but more and more, I'd say the mainstream library is beginning to look like a bit more of a multimedia center with a lot of uh, digital resources, digital tools as well. So what do we like about this, Brendan? Oh, what's not to like, Rob? You got more access to resources, more support directly related to the curriculum. You know, as much as we liked that dusty old traditional library where you might get shushed, we like this much more because a student now has way more opportunities to study. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there's any drawbacks to this. Obviously, like when we start to look at more progressive schools and, and students are doing more of their own individualized project, then we might look for more in that area. But if you're in a mainstream school where everyone's more or less studying the same thing to a large degree, this is actually a really, really good place to get that support. It's a quiet place for people who might not have uh, that space at home as well. Often, again, when you get up into high school, they're open often into the evening. So yeah, there's lots and lots of positives from the mainstream library. Is there anything we should be wary of in this area? No, nothing specifically jumps out. I think the only thing that you begin to see once you start comparing schools is perhaps just the quality of resources that some schools have over others. And you may see some disparity when comparing, you know, the mainstream school in the richer neighborhood versus the mainstream school that's perhaps in a lower income area that, yeah, I would say this is the only possible drawback, that there may be inequality across schools in terms of what is available for students there. I think that's a great point. I think it, it stretches across everything we're talking about today. We're, we're trying to give some a very broad and generic view of the mainstream school, but some schools just receive way more funding than others. And especially if we start to talk about private mainstream schools, just because the school's private doesn't mean it's traditional or progressive. Most schools out there are mainstream. They're, they're teaching a standardized curriculum and standardized assessments and so on, and they're aiming towards workplace preparation. So yeah, it, it is a struggle for some schools. I've worked in schools in lower income area and, and more affluent areas, and that does make a huge difference. So we've looked at the library as kind of a library tech hybrid. If we were to look at some of the other learning spaces you might find in a mainstream school, a lot of schools nowadays do have some kind of tech 
or IT room if it's not integrated into the library. So that's something you'll see. And also sort of like temporary or flexible or portable learning spaces are also a thing. You'd see this especially like in primary schools. So this is largely due to space reasons. So maybe you don't have the space for a giant art room or some kind of STEM, like science, technology, engineering, mathematics space, um, or even possibly a music room for that matter. You might have all of the music stands packed up in a closet somewhere and, you know, out you come into the kind of school assembly pit for your music lesson. Or, you know, maybe you don't have that tech room and all of the school laptops are set up on a trolley and the IT room comes to your classroom. Or, you know, possibly like at one of the schools we were at, Brennan, there was the emphasis on STEM and the idea that, you know, there need to be maker spaces. But this was something that could be kind of brought out and then more or less packed back up or put back onto the wall at the end of that time. So again, using that same space for many different purposes. Uh, again, just trying to provide as many opportunities as possible for students and not being restricted by the spaces you have, but rather being creative and flexible and using your spaces as effectively and as efficiently as you can. That's another great point that essentially that's what links everything here in this mainstream design. How effectively can you use and how efficiently can you use that limited amount of space and the resources you have? And um, the best mainstream schools do a great job of offering a, a really wide range of opportunities with often somewhat limited resources. So here is a question for you, Rob. The mainstream school is very much about criteria and measurable progress. What do you think some of the criteria might be for a mainstream school to judge itself successful in this area? What would make a successful school building in the eyes of the mainstream? I think it's, again, comes back to this metric of efficiency versus effectiveness. And at the end of the day, when the blueprint is drawn up for the new place and it's built and classes have begun and we think about what planning and what activities and what systems and all these kinds of things and what resources will be at play within the space, I think essentially a school just sits back and says, are we maximizing the opportunities we are offering for students and offering quality? So I'm going to link that idea of quality to effectiveness. But at the same time, are we not overextending our budget? Are we not overextending our resources? Are we getting the most bang for our buck by doing it as efficiently as possible as well? And I think in the best case scenario, that is actually being measured. Do you have a different take on it? No, I agree with that. I think it's a very good answer because when I was doing my research for this, I came across some uh, a magazine designed by the Japanese Ministry of Education. And they actually had a table in here where they'd attempted to look at a school to see what they say in their explanation is ingenious ideas for rooms and spaces to enhance educational effects. Now, we would argue that some of these criteria are leaning more traditional, some even a bit more progressive, but some are clearly in the mainstream. So some of the criteria they were looking for, spaces to improve foreign language skill, the entire building being used as an educational tool, lockers, coat racks, and other storage spaces. So it's really interesting. Maybe I'll post a link to it. There's, there's about 25 criteria that the Japanese government were looking for for a successful school facility. It's a good question to ask if you're in a school to, is more modern or maybe you're in a beautiful old Queen Anne style, how well does it actually meet the educational needs 
of your community. Maybe we can then now address that question that was at the head of the show, Rob. What do you think? It's time for you to come down hard on one side or another. Are mainstream schools designed just to save money? It's a yes or no question. The answer is yes. And then just a tiny caveat to say, but that's not the only thing that they are designed to do. But I would say that that is at the core, and that goes back to my answer of this idea of maximizing efficiency and effectiveness. I think the majority of mainstream schools that I have seen, both public and private across at least three, kind of four different countries at this point, the buildings themselves are designed to save money. But of course, the saving of money is not the only reason they were made. It is obviously made to uphold the values and the practices and the principles of mainstream education that's centered around the value of opportunity. But they are definitely trying to maximize the efficiency and the effectiveness is not always done at the same level or an equal ratio, I would say. I think I concur. I think the just in that question is, is a little bit unjust. I think mainstream schools are clearly designed with the idea of efficiency in mind. And when done well, they actually embody that and they really make it more possible to teach in this mainstream style, erring towards the idea of workplace preparation and preparing for the next stage of school, giving students lots Lots of opportunities. And so at their best, they're designed efficiently and effectively. So in our next few episodes, we'll continue looking at the mainstream school. We're going to shift from the physical building, which we've been looking at today. And in our next episode, begin to look at the staff and what are some of the characteristics you'd see in a mainstream school. When thinking of the head teacher archetype, when thinking about other roles that might be seen within the school's leadership structure, and as well looking at what the school ethos is, what the beliefs about education are, and even just some of their ideas about what their role in the school is. And I also believe we're going to get another opportunity to talk to our esteemed guest, Dr. Brad Kirshner, in the next few weeks too. So that's going to be fabulous. Yeah, looking forward to that. We spoke with Dr. Brad Kirshner, or rather I got to speak with Dr. Brad Kirshner back in the summer and we released that episode recently. Brennan, you're a statsman. What episode was that? I believe it was 50 something. <laughs> and there were just many threads that that conversation opened up for us that we wanted to continue on. Looking forward to following up threads that we started in our last conversation. And uh, so really looking thankful that that worked out and looking yes. forward to the conversation. So Thanks to all of our listeners for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please speak to us on our email at reinventingeducationpodcast at gmail.com. Join us in the Twitter sphere or, you know, tie a note to our rock and throw it through Rob's window. It's all good. Thanks, Brennan. Thanks, Rob. 